Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. And as of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I lost about 100 pounds. I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. We're not doctors, but we have one on the show. <laughs> we ourselves yeah, don't yeah. want to give any medical <laughs> advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're yep. actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? That would be the null set, sir. <laughs> we have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind that. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we love to cook and we love to eat. Mm. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot and will not. And shall and not. And <laughs> shall not. <laughs> Be ignored. <laughs> so, let's start podcast number 111. Wow. Dr. Ken Berry rants. <laughs> All right. Well, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Yeah, so we have one errata point. Last week's show was Type 1 Diabetic Superstar with Beth Johnson. And yeah. in the conversation with her, I mentioned that whey secretes insulin. Of course, what I really meant to say is that whey causes our pancreas to secrete more insulin. So, Ah, oh, yeah. Subtle detail. Yeah, just to be a little bit more precise. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. All right. Well, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure, a ketogenic diet is less than 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. We don't want to be getting our energy from carbohydrates. These are really only trace amounts of carbohydrates in food that, that has other nutrition in it that we're going to eat. So mm -hmm. green leafy vegetables, eggs, uh, cheese. Eggs are going to have like uh, one gram per egg of carbohydrates. So you really can't have more than 20 eggs in a day if all you're eating <laughs> is eggs. Um, Who does that? Really? <laughs> no one does. But so um, you're going to be getting... Uh, the right amount of protein for you f uh, to be able to maintain your lean muscle mass. Now, that scales based on how much lean muscle mass you have. And it's mm. what we've used is between one and one and a half grams of, of protein per kilogram of lean mass. Um, mm. And for both of us, that has worked. Um, you can have up to 3.3 grams, but above that, uh, things starting start to get a little bit hairy. Now, interestingly enough, I did a presentation at Low Carb uh, Down Under at the Gold Coast last year, and that's just released on YouTube. And it was a presentation where I explained the, precisely the range of protein. So I suggest you go have a look at it. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. But I'm glad to see that the link has been up for less than five minutes since it's a half-hour presentation, and already there are six down votes. <laughs> so wow. so, uh, so obviously arrived, people sorry. have decided if Richard Morris is going to talk about protein, we're going to downvote him. But anyway, <laughs> the point of a ketogenic diet is we don't get our energy from protein. We use protein for right. a more important point, which is building our bodies. We use right. fat for energy, and fat is yeah. the most stable 
form of energy that we can use. In fact, right. when our bodies have excess energy that they want to store for a rainy day, what do they do? They don't store it as protein structures. We don't, we don't build muscles so that we can use them, catabolize them on a rainy day. We right. store it as fat. And in fact, yep. we even store it as saturated fat. We make saturated fat in our bodies. So, um, fat. fat. <laughs> That's just to trigger all the people who, who, who hate fat but are on, on low-carb diets. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the basis of a ketogenic diet. Less than 20 grams, drive that down as low as you can. Get all your energy from fat. Make sure that you have enough protein to be able to maintain your lean mass. And that's it. That's it. And that's how we did it. And mm-hmm. that's how you can do it too. Yeah. Just eat more bacon. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> yeah, so how was your week, Carl? Huh? Uh, it was pretty good. I spent a week in Orlando at a software development conference uh, trying to be as keto as possible. Uh-huh. I really did pretty well. I managed to coax melted butter out of my waiters, and it was good. You know, I, It's not easy at software f- conferences, No, is it? it's not easy. If they feed but I did have a few it. sneaky carbs, like some lobster bisque that had a little cornstarch or flour, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I ate twice a day instead of once, what I usually do when I'm at home. But I pretty much I stayed low carb for the most part. Mm. So on Thursday, I flew to Nashville to get a new doctor. Nice. Who happens to be our guest today, yeah. Dr. Ken Berry. <laughs> Coincidentally. Um, yeah, I met with him at his clinic and they drew a lot of blood for labs. And right now I'm at the lovely home of Ken and Nisha Berry enjoying mm. some bacon. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's great. Um, I, as you know, I've had uh, uh, mixed results with my doctor in New London. I really can't find a doctor who understands low carb. So uh, yeah. Dr. Barry was willing to see me and be my general practitioner. So we'll talk to him in a few minutes about that whole thing. Yeah, we had problems last year with Keto Fest because uh, we had press that wanted to do an interview with you and they wanted to talk to your doctor. And your doctor yep. threw you under the bus. She said, oh, look, yeah. while Carl is technically non-diabetic, um, I wouldn't recommend his diet to anyone. And she couldn't because, you know, it was against the uh, dietary standards. Yeah. Bottom line, she was afraid of losing her job. Right. So Bottom line. I get it. She told I me as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. So how was your week, buddy? Uh, yeah, it was quiet. I went to university. Uh, I did an assignment on pubes. Um <laughs> <laughs> what? So, so we had a in human biology. I had to do an assignment on uh, the evolutionary justification for human pubic hair, and ah. uh, the interesting thing about it is that we're the only uh, primate. Uh, in fact, we may be the only mammal that actually has pubic hair. And mm. uh, another interesting thing about it is that the uh, the lice on gorillas and crabs, the lice on pubic hair are almost identical, and they, they really? shared their last ancestor like three three million years ago, and we shared our last ancestor with gorillas like seven million years ago. So so this is really gorilla hair remaining or, or hair, <laughs> hair from our shared ancestor still remaining on our body. So there must have been a reason why when we went hairless everywhere else that we kept mm. uh, hair in our pubic regions. And so it turns out that, uh, that there's a good justification for this in that um, we – when we choose a mate, there is selective pressure on choosing a mate with uh, a 
immunological armamentarium different from ours. So we want to choose somebody. What is that? What? So, so what we, does that mean, so we, college boy? Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> so we, we each have uh, things that we're uh, uniquely better immune against okay. than other individuals. So if you go to choose a mate, if you're choosing a mate that has exactly the same immune reactions that you do, then yeah. you're going to both be susceptible to to the same bug that comes along. That makes sense. So you want to choose a mate that is immune to different things than you are. So you want to have a slightly different immune uh, immune response. So is the idea that when you sort of, you know, you, you kiss and you're intimate and you pass along your germs to each other, you build up immunities from the other's system? There is that, but also your offspring will share your immunological response. And ah. if a bug comes along that is going to kill one of you, your your offspring will still have another parent to keep them alive. So no kidding, that is fascinating. I didn't know that a, a <laughs> that an assignment on pubic hair would would end up with such interesting information. That is fascinating, my I friend. I found it fascinating. So yeah, I wow, mean, this is great. We get to go to college <laughs> through you. We get to live vicariously through your yeah. intellectual pursuits. It's yeah. wonderful. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. So uh, and everybody who yeah. knows me knows this. So anyway, that's uh, that's how my week's been. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, I feel like giving away some swag. Yeah, some loot. Let's do that. Let's do that. So, we're going to give away a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug that has our mugs on it mm -hmm. and says, Keep Calm and Keto on to one lucky member of the Two Keto Dudes fan club. And uh, all you got to do to join that is go to fanclub.twoketo.com, answer a few questions, and you're in. And we have almost 3,000 members in our fan club nice. right now which yeah. is great. Mm. And every show, we like to pick one at random and yep. send them a mug. Yeah. And so today's winner is, guess who? Who have we got? It's none other than Phil Maskell. Well done, Phil. Congratulations. <laughs> you get a mug with our mugs on it. <laughs> Absolutely. You can uh, put whatever you want in that, your coffee with heavy cream or, or coconut uh, oil or whatever you like in there, mm -hmm. butter, grass-fed butter, of course. Rum and Diet and, Coke. Uh, it's all <laughs> whatever for you. you want. Yeah, rum and Diet Coke, <laughs> sure, whatever. And if you don't want to wait to win a mug, you can always buy one at gear.2keto.com and pick yourself up a T-shirt while you're at it. Or some assless chaps. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're so not supposed to go there. No, no I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of the day for me. I know it's early morning yeah, for you, but I'm a little punchy. <laughs> and that brings us to the segment we call... <laughs> Did you suddenly Scooby Doo in the middle of that mail? <laughs> mail? <laughs> we are reef of mail now. Don't. <laughs> no, Scooby's not going to do the mail. <laughs> Zoinks! <laughs> like, wow, Scoob. <laughs> All right. I'll go first, I guess. So, this is a comment left in Apple Podcasts by Mike. And that is formerly iTunes, of course. Mm -hmm. They want to call it Apple Podcasts now. Yeah, we'll let them. That's fine. And Mike says, I love this podcast. After losing 30 pounds by water fasting for 21 days. Wow. Wow. I came across the Two Keto Dudes podcast. That's a hell While of a thing to do as part of a fast. <laughs> What's that? That's a hell of a thing to do as part of a fast. Listen to Two Absolutely. Keto Dudes. <laughs> I know. Well, especially the recipe section. Yeah. Right? How are you going to get? <laughs> how are you going to fast listening to that? <laughs> 
While these guys can be funny and entertaining, the real benefit of the podcast is the determination they have to match their suggestions with scientific truth. That's Mm -hmm. quite refreshing to people like me who want to see success on our health. And he says, I would love to hear about the best way to come off a water fast without being kicked out of ketosis. Most of what I read from searching everywhere on the internet said that you should stop a long-term fast by eating watermelon and apples. Uh, what? No. He goes on to say, these kicked me right out of ketosis of and caused my weight to go up. Yeah, straight onto the sugar. You, you're literally going from uh, uh, almost no insulin, whatever your, your physiological minimum is, to, <laughs> to absolutely <laughs> as high it can possibly go. Don't you're do, right, do, you're don't, a look, red. Yeah, exactly. Don't do that. <laughs> look, here's the thing about uh, a fast. What you're doing with a fast is you're trying to lower your insulin uh, for as long as the fast goes on, and that gives your body an opportunity to, to go into a fasted mode, which is where it gets energy out of body fat, uh, instead of from your diet. Yeah. When you're done with the fast, now, I don't recommend doing 21-day fasts that often. I mean, the most that I, yeah. I, I've done was a 10-day fast, and even then I didn't feel quite right towards the end, which is why I stopped it. I, I feel most comfortable around about a three-day fast, but sometimes I'll do a five. Um, that's like the, the sweet zone for me. But if you're on a long fast, it's very dangerous uh, the moment that you go back to eating food, you can provoke refeeding syndrome, which is um, a yeah. very dangerous state where your electrolytes just go crazy. And this is what killed the singer Karen Carpenter, who was she was anorexic and she went along fast. And 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 then when she started feeding again, um, uh, she got refeeding syndrome. She didn't have the the the, the body fat to be able to 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 keep her going, to, to right. relax her re-entry back to a fe- feeding state, and um, yeah. it killed her. So uh, you have to be very careful. When you're coming off a fast, you want to have food that your body can digest easily. You want to have a small amount of it, and you want to slowly ease your, your gut back into being responsible for getting nutrition into your body. Yeah, we like to tell people to have a handful of nuts and then wait for a half an hour or so. Right. Or, or something like uh, like some uh, some chicken, for example, uh, something yeah. that's easy for the gut to process. Uh, so uh, a small meal with, with a little bit of chicken. I like to have eggs, and I know that people um, mm. people say that eggs are not great for refeeding, but I'll have like I'll have some boiled egg, hard-boiled eggs chopped up with a bit of butter and a little bit of salt, and I'll eat you know, a couple of spoonfuls of that. Um, and then wait for a cup for an hour or so, and then um, mm-hmm. uh, and then start eating more na- more naturally. Yeah, and that's just after a three day fast. After a twenty one day fast, you really got to be careful. Yeah. So I would, I, especially if it's your first one, I would, uh, yeah, I would just have a a couple of bites of nuts and wait a half an hour, and then have maybe an egg and wait an hour, and just be careful. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous. And and the refeeding syndrome is essentially. That to absorb all of those nutrients, your body pulls electrolytes out of your system and uh, in you know and into your gut, right? Mm. And and that can be dangerous, especially for your heart. Your heart can stop if you don't have the right electrolytes. Yeah, you don't have the right electrolytic balance. So, um, I read a, a book uh, by Jason Fung called uh, "The Obesity Code." 
um, mm. because that he goes into detail about uh, refeeding syndrome in that, yeah. and uh, and he's he's put some uh, some blog posts up about how to appropriately fast, and he, he doesn't recommend really long fasts either. So I know we had right. uh, we had a guy on um, who fasted for I think forty days. Uh, oh, it yeah. was a religious one that he did before Easter uh, last year, and that was forty six days. I think that was an outstanding. Uh, effort, but you know, not something that we not something that we intend to do for ourselves, and so we don't have a lot of experience with it, and so we don't have we we, we uh, we're a little bit uh, cautious when it comes to that kind of thing. But the three day fast, go for it. Yeah. So what do you got, Richard? So the mail that I have is from Jerbar on the Ketogenic Forums, and Jerbar says, "Hi guys, I need some support. I'm 173 and weigh 72.5 kilograms. I started my ketogenic diet when I was 77 kilograms, so that's." Four and a half kilograms heavier, uh, or roughly uh, about 10 pounds. So uh, yeah. Jebba says, um, I, I did it for both weight loss, but also to help with my GERD. And the last six months I've been stuck. When I, I trace everything and I stay at 1,200 kilocalories a day, I can lose some weight. I managed to get down to 71 uh, kilograms, but it's hard to sustain such a low kilocalories. These last yeah. three weeks, I've only managed a 1,500 kilocalorie uh, intake, and yet I've gained all my weight back up to 73 kilograms. Uh, my blood ketone test uh, gives me around about one millimole. I don't eat any sweeteners, and once in a while I might make a keto dessert. My macro is 75% fat, 20% protein, 5% carbs. My, mm. my goal weight is 65 kilograms, my weight that I had 10 years ago, and I was happy with my body at that point. My frustration is to lose weight. I have to stay on a 1,200 kilocalorie uh, intake, and it's very hard. Can anyone share uh, what uh, I'm doing wrong? Because I feel like I, I feel like throwing the towel in. So, do you want to go first? No, I I, I want to. I'm interested to hear what your take is on this. Yeah. So I would say that uh, that 1,200 kilocalories is too low. Yeah. So you may consider that 65 kilograms is your ideal weight because your body was once that, and you look back and you say, "I was very happy at that point." But your body is telling you that it doesn't want to be 65 kilograms given the conditions that you've put it under. So you've you've dropped your carbohydrates right down to 5%. You're getting most right. of your energy from fat. What you're doing diet-wise diet is giving your body the ideal reason to accept being uh, a lower level of body fat. Right. You've lowered your insulin, and that is, a, that is the hormone that drives energy into your body fat when you're in a fed state, and dropping it drives it out of your body fat in a fasted state. So... The diet is ideal. You've got you set up an ideal diet for having a low insulinogenic um, response. Here's yeah. my question: Are you eating uh, more than three meals a day, or even more than two meals a day, or even more than one meal a day? That, that's the thing: yeah. is every time you eat, you, you're eating five percent of carbs, you're eating twenty uh, percent of protein. You have to eat the protein to get, to maintain your your body mass. Protein is going to cause some insulin response. Carbs are going to cause twice as much insulin response. So every time you eat, you're going, to, you're going to increase your insulin. You're going to give it a little spike in the air. If you're eating six times a day, if you're snacking between your meals, let's say you have three meals a day and you're snacking between your meals, that's six or seven meals a day. It's, it's like you're at the cricket with a, with a beach ball hitting it in the air. It's staying aloft the whole time. And your, right. your body doesn't have an opportunity to go into a low insulin state to be able to take advantage of the diet that you're eating. So mm. I would say have a think not so much about 
what you eat, because I think you're probably doing a good job there. Think more about when you eat and try and give your body a, a holiday eat during the day where it isn't when, where it isn't eating for a p- period of time now that may mean that you're going to have a very large meal once a day or you're going to have two very large meals twice a day to be able to to eat to satiety and and that's the other thing but that's okay that is okay because you're bo- giving your body a chance during the downtimes to be able to right. to go into the into the fasted state but here's the thing if you are eating multiple times during the day, but you're eating 1,200 calories a day and your body really apparently wants more than 1,500 calories a day, right? what you're telling your body is we're in a famine and we need right. to reduce our use of energy as much as we possibly can. So it's going to dial down your metabolism. It's going to dial down your metabolism. It's also going to burn other sources of energy, such as protein. So you're going to be not losing when you lose weight you won't be losing fat so much as losing protein your lean body well uh, okay but but if you have a lot of junky protein loose skin that kind of stuff and your uh, autophagy kicks in the priority goes to that protein source doesn't it to be used as fuel before lean body mass is touched so you get it out of something called the labile pool of protein uh, label pool of amino acids. And this is about 1% of your body's amino acids at any point in time is just amino acids flowing through your circulation. Protein sources that uh, can easily be catabolized that are not absolutely necessary. We have protein in everything. We have protein in our uh, low-density lipoprotein uh, that carries our fat around our body. Uh, we can choose to make less of that. We can. There's a lot of choices that we can make before... Uh, before we're going to start catabolizing important organs. But when we keep up a caloric restriction for long enough, we start catabolizing proteins in our organs. We start making our heart smaller. We start making our other organs smaller as we catabolize proteins. You really have to consider that somebody who's on a 1,200-calorie starvation diet or caloric restriction is almost the same as somebody who is on a long-term fast. But is there a difference, Richard, between somebody who's on 1,200 kilocalories of mostly fat and a little protein and no carbs, you know, who's fat adapted, than somebody who's on 1,200 calories but has, you know... 100, 120, maybe even 200 grams of carbs a day, which means that insulin is going to raise and uh, not allow them to burn body fat. Yeah, it'll raise, their insulin will be slightly higher at each spike, but it's the duration during the day that's, that's causing the problem. The problem comes down to meal timing. If you can reduce the amount of meals that you have during the day, you reduce the amount of insulin you have during the day, you should be able to burn body fat during those times. And then you can use satiety as a cue. You should be eating. If you're on a ketogenic diet, you should follow Dr. Finney's advice. Don't leave the table hungry. Eat to satiety. Start eating when you get hungry again. And, you know, this is the reason why satiety is such an important key point, because it prevents you from having to make budgetary uh, constraints on your body, like reducing the amount of energy you've got coming in, making you more hungry. That's the other thing the body does when when it's running out of calories. It says, "Right, we're going to we're going to tell this silly fool who's obviously not paying attention to be even more hungry and to do even less, be even more lethargic and do even less exercise and uh, not waste any energy by by you know hopping on a treadmill or doing silly things like that. We're going to conserve energy. We're going to have him sit in front of the TV and." and 
all all day. We're going to have him be hungry the whole time. That is obviously a state that you're going to put all that weight back on again. Hmm. Okay, so if we could wrap it up into one sentence, bacon and eggs. <laughs> bacon and eggs. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really a sentence, is it? <laughs> it's a sentence fragment. It'll do. It, it's good advice, though. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's my mile. Okay. Well, uh, good luck with that one. And uh, I guess now it's time for us to uh, talk to Dr. Ken Berry. Yeah. So this is uh, a recording that we did earlier today. That 12 hours ago. With <laughs> Dr. Berry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's just roll that now. Well, Dr. Ken Berry, thank you for welcoming me into your home and uh, being on the show with us. Such a pleasure, Carl. I'm so glad to have you here. And, of course, I'm joining from Australia. Yes, yes. Hi, Richard. Hi, Ken. Good yes. to meet you, finally. It's great when technology works. <laughs> we, uh, last night, did a Facebook Live, Richard. Okay. And uh, we we talked a little bit to Dr. Barry's followers. Um, but, basically, the experience that I had yesterday is I, I came up to Tennessee on my way home from uh, a conference. Right. And Dr. Barry allows uh, new patients to come in, basically, as long as they see him once. Mm-hmm. And then he, the rest of the visits are e-visits. And he can order tests and stuff. So, I thought, well, this is great. I need a new doctor. Yeah. And I want somebody who's not just learning about low-carb, but somebody who's well-schooled in it. And that's why uh, that's why I'm here. Yeah. So, thank you, Dr. Barry. Oh, my pleasure. All my uh, staff at the office were fangirling over Carl being in the office. <laughs> he was That's a celebrity. Weird. He is. He's a major celebrity. <laughs> yes. I'm happy to ride on his coattails. <laughs> oh, come on, you guys. This is crazy. <laughs> so, the first I heard of Ken was there was this video that came out on YouTube, which is, and it's this doctor from Tennessee that's coming out against the low-carb ketogenic diet. And, of course, I got triggered immediately. I had to go find this out. And of, of course, it's Ken Berry, and and he wasn't out against the ketogenic diet. It was all tongue in cheek. It was all ironic, sarcastic. In fact, it was called the keto diet is the worst diet in the world. Right? Doctor admits, yeah, that's right. And that was in uh, reply to the U.S. News and World Report article about the top forty diets in America. Yeah, yeah. The keto diet is the worst diet if you like diabetes. Right. If you want to lose your toes, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, we want to know your story. I don't know if you get to tell it that much, you know, on your own social media and your own uh, chats and YouTube channels and things, but how does a doctor come to embrace the low-carb therapy? Because from where I sit, most doctors are clueless when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, that's – and I think that you guys might be surprised to find that more and more doctors are not clueless about a low-carb diet. They're just very quiet about it currently. Mm. Right. And so, my story, you might find it marginally entertaining to hear that. So, I grew up being very athletic, very slender. I literally could not gain weight. And so, I went went off to college, went off to medical school – Graduated, started a medical practice in 2002-2003. The medical practice exploded, very popular, very busy. And so I was busy. I didn't have any time to really attend to my diet or my health in any way. And so I started gaining weight. I'm sure it had something to do with the cortisol levels. It's not a great time in my life socially and and family-wise. 
but it was a great time, um, you know, professionally. Sure. And so I wound up gaining about 65 pounds. My triglycerides were elevating. My A1C was elevating. Uh, my C-peptide was going up. My waistline was going up a disturbing amount. And so I thought, this is not my style because I'm never going to be the guy that, that is smoking and telling you not to smoke. Yeah. Right. Or that's walking into your exam room saying, hey, you've got to lose some weight while my belly was hanging over my belt. That's just not my style. I've, yeah, I've never, ever been that kind of guy. And I've mm -hmm. always been repulsed and offended by people who were like that. <laughs> when I first started practice, there was an older doctor and he would be outside his practice at any given moment smoking. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, dude, you, you lose all your therapeutic magic or, or, or touch credibility. when you do that. I mean, you lose your credibility. Yeah. Yeah. But in any medical practice, there's a degree of magic. There's still the, the witch doctor thing. And so if you, if you don't look like you're walking the walk and that, that you're actually benefiting from what's coming out of your mouth, I think you lose a lot of therapeutic credibility with your patients. Mm. We sort of have the same problem. And by we, I don't just mean Richard and I, I mean people who have lost weight on the ketogenic diet and aren't yet to their goal weight. You know, some of these people start at 400, 500 pounds, they lose a hundred pounds, they, they get fit and maybe stall for a while. And now they're out there trying to say what, what how awesome this is. And everybody's like, yeah, but look at you, yeah, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. They haven't and, seen what it came and before. Well, you know, humans sometimes forget that all of our journeys are just that, a journey. And sure. so, even though you're at an infinitely better place in your journey, you're still not where you where they think you should be. And therefore, th they don't realize how much credibility you should have. Yeah. And so, after I gained the 65 pounds, I thought, well... That's this sucks. I'm going to have to do something about this. And so up until that point, I had been recommending the American Diabetic Association diet, the American Heart Association diet, or the Weight Watchers diet, even to my patients, because I, I would explain to them, and I can remember clearly having this conversation. Uh, look, it, this is simple. It's just a it's just a, a a math equation. You just burn more calories than you eat. Period. That's yeah. it. I mean, yeah. how hard is that, dude? <laughs> just mm -hmm. cut back on your calorie intake. I had that conversation hundreds of times in the exam room with patients. And I apologize for that. Looking back now, I'm ashamed of that. And I really apologize to everyone whose health I may have affected by that ignorant advice. So did you actually try those kinds of diets yourself? And how did that work for you? Well, so then that's when I really became ashamed is I, I climbed up in the attic and I got all my nutrition notes from medical school. And I'm like, mm. I'm going to have to touch up because I or brush up. I forgot something. <laughs> and so there's some, you know, there's some key thing I must have missed. And so I got all my notes and your listeners may be imagining this huge stack of tomes and textbooks. But in reality, it was about an inch thick. Right. There was one paperback book and a, a half semester's worth of notes. And so I went through all that and I'm like, okay, so take home message, eat more whole grains, <laughs> eat super low saturated fat yep. and jog. Yep. Okay. I can do that. I'll do that. And so I started mm -hmm. doing that. Started eating tons of whole grain pasta and whole grain wheat and just ate zero saturated fats. And I started using, you know, vegetable oils to cook anything I cooked in and started jogging a few miles a day. And you know that this is the right way to go because 
Uh, all of your education has told you this. You have the combined weight of the USDA, uh, the National Institutes of Health, and every single epidemiologist in the T.H. Chan School at Harvard all saying that this is the right way to go. Right. Right. And early in my career, I was all over the research for everything and not, well, let me, let me quantify that. Uh, I was all over the expert opinion and the expert consensus about a lot <laughs> right. of things because as a young doctor, I thought that was evidence-based. Right. Mm. Knowing what I know now, that was ridiculous that I thought that that actually meant anything. And so, yeah, I was all over the AHA website and the ADA website, and I was trying to put all that into practice for both my patients and for myself. And so after about two months of me, uh, air quotes, tightening up my diet, <laughs> right, I had gained yeah. another 20 pounds. And my numbers were even worse. And at that point, I basically had an epiphany where I literally looked in the the mirror and thought, dude, everything you think you know about the care and feeding of humans may in fact be wrong. Wow. And so that's when I stopped looking at expert consensus. And I started, I, I got outside of my medical box and started searching around for alternative uh, theories of how human beings should eat. And I came across a tattered copy of Robert Adkins' Diet Revolution at a rummage sale. <laughs> I bought it for 50 cents. <laughs> and, That's an investment. <laughs> and, and, right, right. And, and I read that over the weekend, and I thought, wow, that's exactly upside down and backwards of everything I've ever heard. But it seems like there's a lot, a lot of people having a lot of success with it's, that. It's so crazy. It might just work. <laughs> yeah, I found a copy of the Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson, mm-hmm. and then I found The Paleo Diet by Lauren Cordain. Yeah. And based on those three books, I started learning. And I started learning how our ancestors ate and how we should eat in order mm-hmm. to cure chronic disease. And obviously, I've, I've read many, many things since then, but that's where I started. And so immediately after consuming those three books, and modifying my diet as those three guys kind of recommended. And so it would be like a hybrid Atkins paleo, which is effectively high fat paleo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Immediately my triglycerides dropped, my A1C started dropping, my fasting insulin started dropping, and my waistline began to shrink. I started feeling better. And I'll tell you, I hear all the time on my Facebook page about, oh, my, this went away, that went away, this went away. And so I can tell you from personal experience that my chronic severe dandruff went away. Ah. My chronic severe heartburn went away. Mm -hmm. My chronic rosacea slash eczema went away. And then I I got skinny again. And I was like, boom, this is it. (laughs) I found it, right? Yeah. So then I started recommending paleo to all Mm -hmm. my patients. Uh, Paleo and eat eat lots of saturated fat. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know about keto at the time. Right, But I was already preaching it, but I didn't even know it had a name. And so mm-hmm. I found it on some podcast or some YouTube video. I was like, oh, ketogenic. Okay, that's it. That's exactly what I've been talking about and looking for. And so I just quickly consumed every resource and every book and every – I probably watched hundreds of hours of YouTube videos and listened to hundreds of hours of podcasts Every waking moment, I'd be in the garden, I'd be at the office not seeing patients, I'm listening to a podcast, I'm, 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 li- I'm reading research. Every time they reference the research study, I'm looking up the study. Nice. And so after a, about six months of me 
doing strict keto and just feeling better than I had felt in 15 years mm-hmm. in every yeah. respect, in every respect. <laughs> then I started recommending it <laughs> to patients because I always experiment with myself first. If anything's not FDA approved or recommended by any of the big, you know, uh, authoritative bodies of medicine, I always, I always try it on myself first. Oh, yeah. And at any given time, I'm probably trying 10 different things on me to see how I'm going to respond and how it's going to work. And then many, many, many of those things have fell by the wayside. That, and I was talking to Carl earlier this morning about a couple of things I'm trying right now, currently getting no effect. And so I'll never, ever recommend those to patients. They'll right. never even know I tried those. But the things that work, I recommend to my patients who need them. Mm. And so the ketogenic diet has been the best recommendation for my patients who are obese, pre-diabetic, insulin-resistant, type 2 diabetes, and now recently even type 1 diabetics. I'm working closely with them with the ketogenic diet to help them lower their insulin need and, and improve their numbers and help them lose weight. So, in a weird way, doctors who are uh, insulin-resistant, diabetic, and overweight have a better chance of seeing the light than, uh, than those who are metabolically healthy and can't understand why everybody else isn't. <laughs> absolutely. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And so there's this word that doctors use when we're talking among ourselves. It's called noncompliant. Right. And so every patient who doesn't respond to our recommended therapy or treatment regimen, we just say, oh, they're noncompliant. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the ultimate shoulder shrug excuse like i don't know everything i'm doing everything i'm recommending is obviously right all these patients are just non-compliant yeah you see how that that exonerates me from all guilt yeah the dietitians in australia have the same uh point of view their attitude is our dietary advice is correct people just aren't following it and yet if you actually look at the data of what food people are buying they are actually clearly following the diet. It's just cognitive Absolutely. dissonance that prevents them from. They're following at it. the diet. They're following the the guidelines in America yeah. very well. I mean, they've cut back on whole fat dairy. They've cut back on saturated fat. You can actually look at the curves over the last thirty years, and right. the use of all those things has plummeted up until you know keto became popular. But <laughs> and so everybody was listening to their dietitian and their nutritionist and their doctor, but it just wasn't working. And, and so, probably most importantly or disturbing of all, blaming themselves when it wasn't exactly working. Exactly right, yeah. And that's the thing that really infuriates me more than anything is that all these doctors get well-paid, get to go home and feel like their life is complete and that they're changing the world by giving this ignorant dietary advice to their patients. They're making their patients sicker. They're making their patients suffer more with just chronic little maladies that they don't even have to have, like the chronic heartburn and the chronic eczema and the worsening psoriasis and the dandruff and all this crap that people have to tolerate in their life. And it's directly related to the ignorant advice their doctor and their dietitian gave them. And that really triggers me. And I'm going to try not to (laughs) rant, but I mean... Well, you've got me triggered as well now. (laughs) Yeah, makes us all angry. So one of the things that's interesting is that it is entirely reasonable for people to come up with a whole calories in, calories out mechanism because it's it, it's obvious, it makes sense. But the fact is that 
it's not getting the results. You know, you can put all of your patients onto a calories in, calories out regime, and some of them will lose weight. They'll all be miserable, and they'll all put weight on again at the end. And you can consider that your you know, those people who weren't successful were non-compliant, but they're going to walk away and go to another doctor. We tell people all the time, you know, if you can't change your doctor's mind, change your doctor. Because in a lot of cases, if you're not getting the results, move on to somebody else and you'll find what will happen is all of these doctors who are unlucky enough not to have an insulin-resistant metabolism like you did, and so they're not afforded your epiphany, they're denied your epiphany, they're going to lose business and eventually, you know, the business will end up going to doctors who have results. Absolutely. And it's it really is. I've never thought about it that way before, but it's really they're at a disadvantage if they're just healthy and skinny by nature because they really have no incentive to yeah. look at the medical literature with new eyes. And I'll tell you, I've actually heard Jason Fung talk about this before and uh, actually mentioned it in my book. There are these huge medical studies like the Mr. Fit study and the Women's Health Initiative study right. that if you look at them – from a paradigm that the doctors were talking about, look at them, you're blind to the data that those studies actually contain. Right. And I, w- I used to be blind. I just saw the results that were printed in the journals. Mm-hmm. And so I never really dug into the data to say, wait a minute, what else does this huge study show? Yeah. And for example, the Women's Health Initiative proves beyond all doubt that calorie restriction is stupid that counting <laughs> calories is stupid right that that trying to say oh i'm going to cut back on my calories that i eat and i'm going to exercise more hmm. the one arm of that study they did that for 7 or 8 years and the women who did that wound up losing maybe half a kilogram over 7 years or 8 years incredible and so essentially nothing yeah and but they calorie restricted i think 300 calories a day for 7 oh. years so they wow. should have lost 200 pounds <laughs> Should have, except their metabolism's right? all dialed down 300 calories exactly a day. Exactly right. Their metabolism, and that, yeah, they're, you're, the human body's very wise. Yeah. It's very ancient. The DNA knows what to do with calorie restriction. It's not phased by that at all. Their nah. metabolism's just dial back down 300 or a little more, and, and then boom, there's no weight loss. That never works. It never works. Even though the Weight Watchers and the Jenny Craig diet are one of the best diets in the country, According to U.S. News and World Report, <laughs> they never, ever work long term. But does it work? That's the thing. I mean, they rate it as the number one diet. Have they actually asked people who went on that diet to find out how many of them are successful? Well, that's a great point, Richard. And so the Weight Watchers diet has been around in some form since 1969. Wow. So if, in fact, it were the best diet in the country, America would not have an obesity epidemic. Exactly. Because they would have cured it all. Right. Well, the re- the answer is uh, everybody knows that it works, and these people just don't know how to do it. They're just non-compliant. <laughs> yeah. That's right. They're non-compliant. Yeah. They just don't follow the diet, even though we've all been on the Weight Watchers diet at one point or another and yeah. failed. Yeah. It's still one of the best diets in the country, and that's sarcasm. Maybe they feel like <laughs> it, if it doesn't make you hungry, then it's not working. And I think this is one of the things about a ketogenic diet mm. is that you feel full all the time. Therefore, you think like, there's no way I could be losing weight. Yeah. But then you look at the numbers and everything gets better and you lose weight. And most people have that disconnect that, wait a minute, I'm losing weight and I'm not hungry. I feel full. What's going on here? That's one of my favorite things about the ketogenic diet. And that's 
One of my patients' favorite things about it is it's impossible to follow a diet long-term when you're hungry because hunger is hardwired in humans. Yeah. If you're hungry enough, you'll do dastardly things <laughs> to feed you and to feed your children. I mean, hunger is the ultimate motivator. For humans. And, uh, you know, we even talk about it in the vernacular. Oh, I'm hungry for this. And he's a, he's a hungry young man. Yeah. And that means something that we use that word that way. And so when somebody's hungry for long enough, everyone without exception is going to say, you know what? Screw this diet. Mm. That's going to happen every time. Yeah. And so with a ketogenic diet that's actually hacking your hunger hormones, right? you're not hungry. Yeah. And so you're like, yeah, dude, I don't feel like this diet's doing anything because I'm not hungry but I've lost 20 pounds in the last three weeks. So I guess I'll stick with it because it's so easy and I get to eat bacon. Yeah. I think the funny thing is that the the fact that we fall prey to hunger and we fail to live up to our insane uh, calories in, calories out requirements to reduce our food that's coming in, we fail to live up to that and we fall off the wagon and we eventually gain back all of the weight. It's slated down to our own um, sloth and gluttony. You know, it's our own sins. It's our own deadly sins. And when you have a product where if it works, it's your fault that it worked. But if it fails, it's a customer's sins that caused it to fail. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the perfect, it's a perfect pitch. It really right. is. But you know, we got to wake up to ourselves that this is just a crock. It really is. It is the perfect pitch, mm. uh, economically speaking. But how about morally? Right. Let's let's talk to the doctors and the dietitians and the nutritionists out there who are recommending this crap, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Morally, once yeah. the cat's out of the bag, once you've watched some videos about the ketogenic diet, or you've actually tried it in your own life, yeah. morally, how are you going to let your patients bear the brunt of this guilt? Oh, I failed. It was my fault. No. I, what about even economically? I mean, you're in a perfect position to make that call because you switched over from making your money from, I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, a lot of visits with people who are sick and, you know, giving them medications. And now you have way, I don't know, do you have more people coming to you because they've heard about all the success that you're having with ketogenic diets? Oh, yeah. The, the clinic is bustling, very, very busy. But... There's always the possible ramifications from the regulatory body. Right. And, and so there are many doctors, many dietitians, many nutritionists out there who they know about keto. They know about low-carb, high-fat. And they know that it's coming, but they're afraid to go ahead and start teaching it. To that's their the whole reason I'm here is because exactly my doctor right. and said- That's the whole reason that Nisha and I are doing what we're doing is I'm trying to make it okay for doctors to start talking about this out loud. And I'm okay for patients to understand, hey, it's not your fault that you failed on the Weight Watchers diet because the Weight Watchers diet is stupid. Okay? <laughs> and so that's that's the country boy coming out. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just going to tell stupid. you what I think. Okay? Uh, don't hold back, man. And so, <laughs> it, you know, it's not your fault that you're a type 2 diabetic and you're eating the American Diabetic Association's recommended diet and you're gaining weight, and you're, you've just had to start insulin. That's <laughs> not your fault. That's the American Diabetic Association's diet. That's their fault. Exactly. 300 grams of carbohydrates a day they wanted me to eat. This is the Australian yeah. Diabetes Association, but we get, we get our rubbish advice from the same place that you guys do. No, it's true. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's insane. It is insane. 
And uh, we, I, we know plenty of people, plenty of people. We see it all the time. It's funny. You can't unsee it once you've seen it. We, hmm. we have 20,000 people in our forum, and every day somebody posts, hey, you know, I'm off insulin today. And, and that's <laughs> after losing 50 or 60 so awesome. pounds. That's so awesome. But it's time for, for people to start holding their doctor's feet to the fire a little bit. Yeah. And uh, be respectful if you must. Yeah. But just ask your doctor, dude, have you lit- have you seriously not heard about the ketogenic diet? Have you seriously not seen the results from patients who are eating low-carb, high-fat? Really? You really haven't seen anybody do that and, and seen them come off their diabetic medications? Because if you haven't, at this point, I think maybe you're living in a bubble. Right. And maybe you don't want to see yeah. it. And so your other patients are suffering. Your other patients are dying because yeah. you don't want to step up and step out of your bubble and step out of your box and right. start recommending what's actually going to reverse your patient's type 2 diabetes. So what's your advice to other physicians who uh, attempted to give this a go? Because uh, we have a lot of physicians who listen to the podcast, apparently, um, and they all get in touch with us and let us know. Uh, so it, what would your advice be to them when they have a patient coming to them asking about the ketogenic diet? Well, first of all, I would recommend that they try it themselves. That you need to be walking the walk. Yeah. You need to be leading by example. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that's very important for physicians, for parents, and for community leaders. If you're not leading by example, you need to shut up. Okay. And that's just, that's just what I think about that. Okay. And so if you're not walking the walk, then don't even just keep your mouth shut. Okay. But if you are, and you're having results, then what I did in my practice personally, is I picked the most morbidly obese who with the highest A1Cs, who were literally on the cusp of grievous morbidity. Mm. It was coming. They were about to lose a leg. They were about to have a heart attack. They were about to have a stroke. Something yep. terrible was about to happen to them. And so I really felt like this subset of patients really didn't have a lot to lose. Yeah, really. Yeah. Right? I mean, I mean, it couldn't be much worse than the current situation for them. Ex- yeah, how could it get much worse? Exactly, right. right. And so I told these su- this subset of patients, hey, I've got this diet I want you to try because obviously everything you've tried ain't working. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> so that that's how I started using low-carb, high-fat, and eventually ketogenic diet or way of eating in my practice. And all of these guys, without exception, they're like, wait, I can eat bacon? (laughs) (laughs) Bacon is the gateway drug to keto. (laughs) You can eat bacon every day, every meal of the day. Until you're sick of it. (laughs) And a lot of my patients are very low socioeconomic status. I live in a very poor community. And so that's why I have the, the, the saying, you know, you can do keto on hot dogs and mustard. Right, yeah, sure. because you can. Now it's not mm. perfect. It's not ideal. It's not grass fed. It's not massaged by panda bears. <laughs> it doesn't but, need to be. <laughs> but it doesn't need to be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All you need is to do is eat high fat, super low carb. And so these people started gorging on fat, and they started mm. losing weight like gangbusters. Their numbers started coming down, and then they started spreading the word to all their friends. Because, you know, birds of a feather and all that. Yeah. And so they started telling all their overweight friends, dude, eat your bacon. Mm. Trust me, because I'm <laughs> doing it and I've lost 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds. And go see Dr. Berry, because he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> right. And I've had so many patients come from, at first it was out of town and now it's out of state. Because <laughs> right. their friend or their mama or their brother 
got these amazing results and they get to eat all the fat they want and they get to not be hungry and they get to throw their diabetic medications in the garbage. Mm. And so that would be my advice for doctors, for nutritionists, for dietitians is quietly do your homework, quietly learn about it. Don't, don't mention it to anybody. Then mm. implement it in your own life and then try yep. it on your sickest patients, your sickest type two diabetics who are just, you know, within a year or two, they won't be with you anymore. They're going to be losing not try legs. It with and, them? Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. you as a physician rather have, I mean, there's no end to the number of people that can be healed with this, right? Absolutely. So it's not like your business is going to shrink. It's going to increase because all these morbidly obese diabetic people are going to be coming to you because of your success. And aren't you going to sleep better at night knowing that you're saving every one of your patients rather than, you know, making a few dollars on an amputation or something? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without doubt. But I'll tell you something about doctors. I'm, I'm not like most doctors. Okay. I'm an early ad- adapter, early adopter of, of technology. I had an electronic medical record back in 2003. Which right. nobody, nobody had that back then. I was using a Palm Pilot with an electronic <laughs> medical record back in 2001 as a resident well physician. Yeah. Nobody yeah. was doing that. And so I'm an early adopter. I'm yeah. well aware of that. But most doctors are not. And most doctors are exceedingly risk averse. They don't want any yeah. risk. They don't want mm-hmm. any chance of anything going bad. And that's, that's a big reason why pediatricians overuse antibiotics so much. Because right. you're going to have a much greater chance of a bad outcome if you don't prescribe the antibiotics acutely, then you're going to have ultimately with the shift in gut bacteria and all that other stuff. And so yeah. doctors on average are very risk averse. Now think of what you just said there and the irony in it. If it, you want right. risky, you should be going down the medication pharmaceutical path. That's the risk. I, I totally agree when you're looking at it with my eyes or your eyes, Carl. But when you're looking at it from the eyes, from the paradigm of the average doc who's got his clinic and he's got his family and he's got his bills to pay, that feels very much like stepping on very unsteady ground. Sure. Yeah. And I know that. I get that. Yep. But mm-hmm. it's the time has come. The time has come. There's enough research out there. There's enough uh, case studies out there. There's enough of your own patients out there who will happily tell you about their successes with the ketogenic way of eating if you'll just listen. And so I think that's why doctors have so much trouble with this is because they're very risk averse. But let me tell everyone out there listening, talk to your doctor about your ketogenic way of eating. Even if you think he's going to say, oh, stop that. That's stupid. (laughs) Because your doctor probably has heard of it and he's probably interested in it, but he's still afraid of it. Show me the science. Show me the science is what he's going to say. And Mm. to which my response would be, well, show me the science about the American Diabetic Association diet. I'd love (laughs) to see that science because I've never seen that science other than the expert consensus. Because I've never seen any meaningful, large, randomized, double-blinded studies about the American Diabetic Association diet. If it was real science, it wouldn't be based on a consensus. Seriously. Exactly. Exactly, Richard. That's the, the thing. And so really, none of these diets have any research, really. I think the hmm. ketogenic way of eating has much more research than some other diets and ways of eating. And so you've just got to talk to your doctor. And I think after enough people say, dude, I'm eating keto and I've lost 20 pounds. At some point, your doctor's going to say, damn it. 
I'm I better look into Google that. that when I get home. <laughs> Dr. Westman talks about this in his presentation. He did this last year, Keto Fest, was that according to the um, the standards of what the FDA requires in order to prove that a drug is effective, the research on ketogenic diets is way past that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And Carl and I were talking about this earlier today. You can get FDA approval for a new diabetes medication if you can show that it's 5% better than uh, metformin and 7% better than placebo. You can get an FDA approval on that. That's incredible. But I mean, we're seeing seeing near 100% success with the ketogenic way of eating when it comes to a type 2 diabetic on insulin or on two or three different medications, the the success rate is pushing in the high 90s. Yeah, so the VERTA study, which is really the, the first real controlled clinical trial that's been done uh, on, on type 2 diabetes and a ketogenic diet, they had like 90% of the people came off uh, came off insulin and of the people who remained compliant and 86% of the people who were given the diet remained compliant to it, and 60% saw a reversal in their diabetes. Nobody's seen that results. I mean, you can't even find a diet that gets 86% compliance after a year. I mean, the the best diet in the world, the the eat-as-much-as-you-want diet, probably doesn't get an 86% compliance rating. (laughs) Exactly right, yeah. And so you've got a diet with super high compliance Mm. that has better results than any FDA prescription medication for improving the numbers of a type 2 diabetic, and yet doctors don't want to talk about it. It's incredible. It's got a better outcome than bariatric surgery. I mean, there's only really two. There's there's like three things that can reverse diabetes. A ketogenic diet has been clinically shown to reverse diabetes. Bariatric surgery has shown to do it. And uh, a starvation fasting diet has been shown to do it. Those three things. And the ketogenic diet has the highest rate of reversal of type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. And I think that when we've continue to do the science for long enough that the ketogenic diet is going to blow away bariatric surgery because you guys probably know this, but some listening may not know, everyone eventually overeats their bariatric surgery and they gain back the weight. At at five and seven years and 10 years after bariatric surgery, they've all overate the surgery and gain back their weight. So sad. And you never hear about that when you're looking into bariatric surgery. They don't tell you that statistic. And so I think as we do longer term studies of the ketogenic way of eating, I think it's going to blow away even bariatric surgery. Yeah. The other thing they don't tell you about bariatric surgery is after you've had the surgery, you have to go on a very, (laughs) you have to go almost on a ketogenic diet anyway. So, you know, uh, if you're going to be compliant for the surgery, uh, you have to have on a, you have to get, uh, most of your energy from fat and and a very high protein diet to and and almost no carbohydrates. So you know, exactly why, why right. not try that and first? Most, exactly. And most bariatric programs before they'll perform your bariatric surgery, they want you to fast for a few days or a few weeks so that you can cure your fatty liver before yeah. the surgery. Get but they're not down. doing it to cure your fatty liver. <laughs> they're doing it so that your liver won't get in the surgeon's way right. while he's doing the surgery. And that's a true story. Yeah, uh, We had a in a metropolitan area near me, I was pretty good friends with the bariatric surgeon. And he's like, please, you've got to have your patients fast or calorie restrict so that they can cure their fatty liver because that liver is so huge it gets in the 
surgical field and I <laughs> yeah. can't see what I'm doing and I have to employ an extra nurse just to retract the liver. Uh-huh. I have to have a liver retraction nurse because their livers are so big. But if you'll fast them for a couple of weeks, then I don't have to do that. And right. so he was thinking about this from a purely economical <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> yeah. Not ever once realizing he was saying, hey, if you fast your patients, you'll cure their fatty liver. Right. He was just looking at one salary, a nurse's salary. That's right. Uh. One FTE. That's what he was looking at. Not <laughs> yeah. the fact that he had, ch- he had cured his patient's fatty liver. Wait right. a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not joking. That's a true story. Wow. Yeah. That was probably eight or nine, maybe 10 years ago. And he had just started a bariatric program in a metropolitan city near me. And so uh, I was working closely with him because I've always had an interest in helping type 2 diabetics and people who are morbidly obese. And I hated that surgery was the answer, but at that time it seemed like it was because all these damn patients were so noncompliant with with my recommendation to eat a Weight Watchers (laughs) diet. They just wouldn't do it, so they had to have surgery. Every once in a while, do you get a patient that has some condition that sort of prevents them from doing the proper ketogenic diet? And what do you do about that? I have never had a single patient in my clinic who medically could not do a ketogenic diet. There is a short list of inborn errors of metabolism that should not do uh, the ketogenic diet. But these people know who they are because they've Mm -hmm. had this condition since birth. Their parents have taken them to the geneticist and to the, the pediatric endocrinologist because something wasn't right. They already had failure to thrive or they had some kind of, it was obvious something endocrinologically wasn't right about this baby, this kid. And so these people know who they are. They know that they have an inborn error of fat metabolism. And so those people shouldn't eat a ketogenic diet. And I'm in the process of making a YouTube video about the actual conditions that are medically prohibited. Just can't. They just physically can't do a ketogenic diet. But out of the entirety of America, there's probably 200,000 people who have these inborn errors of metabolism and cannot eat keto. Less than 1%. Way less than, oh, one, one, one hundredth of one percent or less than that even. It's, it's minuscule, the people who literally cannot do a ketogenic diet. So you're a family physician and you obviously see kids. Do you, do you have success with kids and how do you get them to comply? I, I, I have, and I really don't start talking about the ketogenic diet until someone's 12, 13, 14. Uh, until their growth plates are closed because that's one of those third rails in medicine. Yeah, sure. Right. And so I don't recommend the ketogenic diet for anybody younger than their early teens. Certainly, though, you recommend cutting sugar as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not because I don't believe it'll work. It's just because that could be a disastrous medical legal thing if something happened to happen. If they got hit by a truck, literally, they could sue me. <laughs> yeah. Literally. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so crazy. And then I would probably get censured or sanctioned or fined by my medical board because I was recommending that ridiculous diet for this poor little child who then got hit by a bus. But so, how do you get a kid to cut down on sugar? I mean, that's And really so hard. I recommend the paleo diet for most of those, for all those kids. Anybody under the age of 13, 14, I recommend the paleo diet. Yeah. And then emphasize fats are not bad for you, fats are good. So it's effectively a high fat paleo diet. Because you know, you guys also know it's a sin to tell a parent that their child shouldn't eat fruit. Right. right. I mean, that is, that's the sin of all sins in pediatrics. That's a third rail right there. <laughs> that's a third rail. That's right. And so I'm not prepared to touch that rail yet. Nah, but nah. a high fat paleo is going to get 90% of kids 
closer to where they need to be and where they want to be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Real, real food is probably the first thing. But the thing is with kids, I mean, kids can tolerate a lot more sugar and they can get into ketosis a lot easier. If they do get into ketosis, they can they can be knocked out for a couple of hours and then be back into it, you know, in a couple more hours. So it's right. it, they have an entirely different metabolism uh, than they will have once they hit puberty. And so it's really sort of it's sort of just towards the end of puberty where where it really starts becoming important. You need to know whether your metabolism is is insulin resistant. And uh, you'll know, you know, by the time you're 25, you'll already start to see the effects in your liver. You'll see it in your your adiposity. You'll be getting a central truncal adiposity, and you, you'll know by that stage it'll be too late to make an early intervention. That's a great point, Richard. I think that's exactly right. I think that most people become insulin resistant at some age. Yeah. Now, some people don't. We all know that 85 year old who still, you know, weighs 110. Yep. And looks great and can eat anything they want. But as you get older, that becomes more and more rare. And so mm. some people, it hits them in, you know, very young in life in their teenage years. Some mm. people, it hits them in their mid-20s. It hit me in my mid-30s. That's where it hit me. And so when I was 25, I could literally live on jelly donuts <laughs> and skim milk and still weigh 185 pounds. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Literally could have done that and did do that for days at a time when I was on call, you know, like on a trauma rotation or, or doing my pediatrics rotation. I, I junk constantly yeah. and still felt good and looked good. Mm. But about 35-ish, my metabolism shifted and I still don't know why that happens. I don't know if it's a shift in gut flora or if it's some somehow age related, but I became insulin resistant and I'm sure I had it for years before that. Yeah. Isn't chronic insulin resistance just the amount of time that your insulin stays high? And that's probably why kids, yeah. they just haven't been alive long enough exactly. with high insulin kids can levels. Kids snap to- back into ketosis immediately like Richard alluded to. And mm. like the average baby that's breastfeeding, they're in ketosis all the time. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, th- yeah. that's just how it is. And so, yeah, I think that kids stay in ketosis so much that they just don't have the opportunity to become insulin resistant. But then as you get older, as Carl said, you just have more and more opportunity to have elevated insulin and then more and more opportunity to become ultimately insulin resistant. Yeah. So that's that's great. Um, we're, we're sort of running out of time, but is there any other last minute things you want to tell everybody uh, where they can find your resources and your YouTube videos and your Facebook live videos? Oh, sure. No problem. Uh, so I've got this book that I wrote called Lies My Doctor Told Me. Great and basically, Good uh, this is one of the many lies is that you should eat what the American Diabetic Association tells you to eat. Mm-hmm. And so I've got about 20 lies in the book that I wrote, and it's available as a paperback and a, a Kindle. And if nice. I can ever get my ADD under control, I'm going to do an audible mm. version of it, but I haven't yet. Uh, I've got a Facebook page. I've got a YouTube channel. I do. I, I play on Instagram and Twitter, but I don't really do a lot of work there. But if you'll uh, search for me, Ken, Ken Berry, MD, on Facebook or YouTube, I think you'll find me pretty close to the top. And then uh, I'm always answering questions and taking comments and using your questions to make a new video on YouTube. So I really love the interaction both in the clinic and online. And I love working with people and I love the stories when they message me a few months later and say, dude, you've changed my life. I've lost (laughs) how many pounds? I've stopped how many medicines? I don't have all these chronic maladies anymore. Thank you for that. And that really makes my heart happy when I hear that. 
And, you know, it should be noted that you're not financially suffering from that as a doctor. In fact, yeah. your business is going through the roof. Yeah. You doctors out there, I'm telling you, step out of the box. It's time. You, you've heard about it. You know about it. You dietitians, you nutritionists. There's actually a huge opportunity financially at this point because you are poised to be the leader in your community, to step yeah. out and say, hey, the ADA diet is stupid. I'm not <laughs> going to recommend it anymore. I'm going to recommend this diet for my type 2 diabetics. And might your local uh, fellow doctors or dietitians frown on you and, and say, I don't understand what's wrong with him. Yeah, they might do that. But then when their waiting room is empty and yours is full, they'll come around. <laughs> Great. Dr. Oh. Barry, thanks. It's been a real pleasure, and it's been a real pleasure being here in your home, and uh, I, 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 I can't thank you enough for being my new doctor. Oh, man, I love it, and it's such an honor to be on the podcast. I love you guys so much. You're doing great work. Thanks, Ken. Changing lives, and I'm honored to be here. Likewise. Thanks. Heard you say y'all do for a little. Uh, I got to tell you, it's just a joy to meet an enlightened doctor and then to be able to call him my doctor right. is even more of a luxury. So I'm very grateful to Dr. Barry. Yeah, we needed to get you a doctor to get you in for a, a coronary artery calcium score, among other things. Oh, there's so many tests I want to do. Yeah. And he's gung-ho, man. <laughs> yeah. He's like, let's do them. So, Excellent. yeah, I can't wait. Outstanding. Well, you peckish, my friend? I am a little bit. All right. I guess it's time for some uh, recipe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you got, Cal? Well, today I have a, a, a keto taco salad. And this is something that I ate a lot the first time that I did the Atkins diet successfully and mm -hmm. lost about 70 pounds. Um, of course, you know, I thought it was bad for me, so <laughs> after a while I gave it up, but yeah. this is great stuff. Mm. You know, every once in a while you just get a hankering for that Mexican flavor, you mm. know? Yeah. Cumin and that chili powder mm -hmm. and garlic and mm -hmm. all that stuff. It just tastes really good. And we've done on this show, um, cheese shell tacos. We did, yeah. Yeah. And so the taco meat is about the same, but... These days, I love a combination of ground beef and Mexican chorizo. Right. And that's the fresh right. stuff, right? It comes in a bag. Yeah. And, yeah. So if you're yeah, in Australia, just buy uh, unsmoked chorizo. That's fresh, it's squeezy and, and soft. And then you just uh, you just basically cut it with a knife, squeeze out the insides, and you've got exactly the same as you'd have in America from a bag. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't have that flavor, add a little five-spice powder. Right. The Chinese five-spice powder. I think it's the star anise mm. that makes it uh, taste so good. Yeah. Anyway, you're going to have a quarter pound of each, ground beef and Mexican chorizo. And you're going to uh, use uh, butter or ghee, about two tablespoons of that mm -hmm. to fry it in. Yep. You need, uh, for seasonings, three cloves of crushed garlic, or you could use garlic powder if you want. Mm-hmm. One tablespoon of onion powder, or, you know, if you're adventurous and you like a few more carbs, you can chop up a little onion and right. put it in there. But onion powder works, too. Mm -hmm. Two tablespoons of chili powder, mm -hmm. and you can do that to taste. Sometimes I end up sprinkling a little more in there. One to two tablespoons of cumin. Yeah, I should make... Cumin powder. 
I should mention at this point that those spices that you've given are exactly the spices in a package of um, uh, taco seasoning. That's right. They add to it starch to stop it from uh, clumping together. Yeah, who needs that? Who needs that starch? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. exactly. Uh, you're going to use pork rinds, and you use these yeah. like your nacho chips. You, know? <laughs> you just crush them up. Yeah. So one to two ounces of pork rinds broken into bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. You, you, if you like them big, that's fine. Stick them around the edge. If you want to crush them up a little bit, that's fine, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, optionally, you can add three or four sticks of bacon, crumbled. <laughs> bacon is always a good option. Better. <laughs> <laughs> And now you you want salad veggies like mm-hmm. lettuce, celery, tomatoes, cucumbers, those kinds of things. You know, knock yourself out. Whatever you like to make your salads with, you can use the same thing here. Mm-hmm. You're going to use uh, a half a cup to one cup of shredded Monterey Jack cheese. And Monterey Jack is really, really good for taco salads because it's, it's a little chewy. You know, it's soft. It melts a little bit when you when you put it over the taco meat. It's yeah. just good stuff. That's a unique cheese to America. We don't get that in Australia. But in Australia, right. I just use uh, Bigger Tasty. That would be a similar kind of cheese. What did you call it? It's called Bigger. That's a brand name. Bigger Tasty. It's a kind of tasty cheddar cheese. Okay, but it comes in 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 grated form, or you can, you know, you can use the you can get a block of the stuff and grate it yourself if you want. Well, I'd like to taste that. Will you, you smuggle some to I'll, I'll, I'll smuggle, Actually, you're I'll coming next week, aren't you? Yeah, I'll smuggle a kilo in next week. Yeah, it's a deal. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Oh, this is great. I love learning new things. <laughs> okay, now you want uh, optionally a quarter cup to a half a cup of fresh guacamole. And mm-hmm. if you've never made guacamole before, it's just avocado that's smashed. Yep. Uh, garlic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if for one avocado, I would use maybe one clove of garlic. You don't need a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, lime juice, and I would use maybe a quarter of a lime, maybe a half if it's not all that juicy, and a little salt to taste. And there you go, people. We have a recipe inside a recipe. (laughs) A recipe inside a recipe. (laughs) So making fresh guacamole is good. Some people add chopped onions and tomatoes, too. That's fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, You want some sour cream and some salsa. Just make sure your salsa doesn't have sugar in it. Yeah. And here's my tip for salads. Anytime you have a salad... Add a quarter of a cup of olive oil to it and right. toss the leaves, the greens, in the olive oil. Because you know what? Olive oil makes, and fat, in general, makes every vegetable better. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you have salad dressing, a little olive oil just make it better. Don't let any right. leaves be dry. Cut, absolutely. Coat, coat Why would oil. you eat dry leaves? Exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you brown the meat and the butter and you mm-hmm. add the garlic and the seasonings. Yep. And this is a an opportunity to add salt and pepper to taste. Mm. Just do that until it's the perfect saltiness, pepperiness. Yeah, normally when you make taco meat, uh, what they do in the package mixes is they tell you to pour off all the fat and add water back to it. Don't yeah. do that, oh, people. No. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's good stuff right there. All right, so now you build your salad. I don't need to tell you how to make a salad. You just take all your salad greens and make a salad the way you normally do. But now you you put the olive oil over that and a pinch of salt, and then you toss all those greens. Now spoon the taco meat on top. Add the cheese over that so it melts a little bit. Now you're going to sprinkle over that your bacon and your pork rinds so they stay crispy. You don't want to put those on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And here's just a general 
chefy tip, right? If you're going to have something crispy, don't put sauce on it. No, <laughs> put it <laughs> on the sauce. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, because that just douses it in sauce and it makes it soggy. So don't do that. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to have something crispy, you want that to be on the top. Mm. All right. Oh, that sounds pretty good. And you can just eat this with a spoon out of a bowl, right? Yeah. And you can put your sour cream, salsa, and guacamole on the side, and it's a meal. Yeah. So this recipe right here serves two people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're really hungry, you can eat it all yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you can eat a quarter of a pound of beef and a quarter of a pound of chorizo all by yourself. That's a like half a pound of meat, you know. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a meal for yeah, me. it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, so that's Carl's Keto Taco Salad. So what do you got, brother? So this uh, week is Easter, this weekend, and uh, yeah. a couple of years ago, exactly uh, three years ago, uh, on April 4th, pretty close to today's date, I did a blog post on how to make low-carb chocolate. Oh, yeah. And so I went into the science of how chocolate works, and chocolate really, uh, the basis of chocolate is the fat, the chocolate fat. Yes. And yes. Uh, the flavor comes mostly from the, the cacao mass. So so you can think of this as cocoa powder, cocoa butter, and then something to make it sweet. That's the basic recipe right. for chocolate. Now, yeah. w- when we were at Low Carb Breckenridge, we made up some chocolate. And what I do is I use little um, silicone uh, crucibles, chocolate-making crucibles, and uh, I put in about 50 grams of, uh, of, of cocoa butter and uh, about uh, two teaspoons of cocoa powder and then a, a smidgen of sucralose powder. You, now, you can't use a, a liquid sweetener in, co- in right. chocolate because what it'll do is it'll seize the oils. As soon as they come into contact with the water, they seize up. So you've got to use dry powders to do this. And just back up a little bit, your recipe is really about tempering chocolate, which makes it... That's right. Oh, how, how, do, you, how do you say it? You know, when... When chocolate has that snap to it, it's it's sort of solid and it has a, you know, like the magic shell stuff you used to get when right. you were a kid. You yeah. pour it over ice cream and it turns into a shell. Yeah. So in Breckenridge, I didn't make tempered chocolate. This was just melt it and eat, eat the chocolate as it comes out. And so what happens is the chocolate that comes out, it doesn't snap. Mm. If you make a piece of it and you try and break it, it sort of goes bleh. It doesn't go snap. No, oh, okay. Well, I remember in, in Breckenridge 2017, you made tempered chocolate. Yes. In Breckenridge 2017, I made tempered chocolate. Now, yeah. what yeah, yeah. I did back then was I used a sous vide. Now, there's, and there's a trick for doing that. But the basic process of tempered chocolate, it does two things. It makes chocolate that snaps, and it makes chocolate that melts at a unique temperature. It mm. melts in your mouth, but not in your hand. And that, that's, that's what, that's, that that's, that's what tempered chocolate is. So when you see um, candy bar companies that talk about chocolates that melt in your mouth and not in your hand, they're talking about having tempered chocolate on the outside. So, so the, the trick with chocolate, the actual chocolate fat, the cacao butter, has a bunch of different um, crystals that it forms as it solidifies. As it goes from a liquid to a solid, it yeah. makes six different types of crystals. Now, yeah. it's not commonly known but water makes something like 15 different types of crystals depending on the temperature and the pressure that you freeze the water at and uh, we're used to the hexagonal ones that makes uh, six-sided crystals for example snowflakes but water can make uh, like 15 different types of crystals wow cacao fat makes six different 
types and each type of crystal melts at a different point and it has different mm. characteristics so we're, we're trying to get that chocolate to be one unique kind of crystal so mm. the trick with tempering is you're going to start off with chocolate that's at room temperature it's cacao butter but we're going to mix it with the 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 cacao powder and the sugar and then we're going to melt it until there is no crystals at all left in the mixture so it's completely liquid and to do that you have to get it above the melting point of the highest melting point crystal which is the type 6 crystal we're going to take our chocolate from room temperature it's it's, it's really the cacao butter that's doing the melting all of the rest of it's just flavoring so we're going to take this from room temperature up to about uh, up to above 36 uh, degrees celsius and that's about 96.8 Fahrenheit. Yeah, so just a couple of degrees above that. And what will happen is that's the melting point of the the highest melting point crystal, the type 6 crystal. We want to get it right. above that so there is absolutely no crystals in the mix at all. Yeah. And then once – and it, it only has to be at that point for a couple of minutes until it's all melted. And then we're going to drop it to 27 degrees Celsius. And that's 80.6 Fahrenheit. Right. So that's the melting point of the type 4 crystals. And so what's going to happen is it's going to start to crystallize these crystals. And these, these are the ones that we want that are going to be melting in the, in the mouth, not in the hand. And so then we just take it up a little bit. We take it up to uh, 32 degrees and we're going to hold it at that. And what is 32 in Fahrenheit? That's uh, 89.6. Awesome. According to Mr. Google. According to Mr. Google. So we hold it at that point for as long as we want, and it's going to be liquid. The crystals inside yeah. it are going to be the right kind to mostly form tempered chocolate. And now we're going to yeah. put it into molds. We're going to use it uh, wherever we want. We can you know, <laughs> pour it in your mouth if you want at that point. I don't yeah. care. But generally, you use like cookie molds or uh, special chocolate-making molds, little silic silicone molds to make little chocolates. Okay, so here's the trick with the sous vide. What you want to do is you want to get a big pot of water and you want to put your sous vide stick in that big pot of water and you want to get it up to the hottest temperature. That's the above 36 Celsius or uh, right. yeah, above 96.8. 90, that's the one, yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, and so that's going to be the starting state. You, you, want, to, you want to put your chocolate, you want to put uh, cacao butter, cacao powder and sweetener in a sous vide bag, vacuum seal it. And you're going to. Now I got a question for you. Yeah. What if you can't get cacao butter? It's kind of a hard thing to find in American grocery stores. Right. You need that to make tempered chocolate. You can't do it with coconut fat. You can't do it with any other butter fat or any other kind of fat. Just because of the temperature that it solidifies at? That's right. Yeah, you need stearic acid, which is the fatty acid in uh, cacao butter. So, unfortunately, if you can't get cacao butter, um, then you, you may not be able to do it. Now, wait a minute. What about just chocolate that's 100% cocoa that has the chocolate and the cacao butter in it at the same time? Can you use that? Yeah, absolutely. You can use um, regular chocolate um, and because it's probably already tempered. But if it's not tempered, I mean, uh, often cases you can buy cooking chocolate. It's not been tempered. Mm. Uh, but you can temper it in this way and you can make a better quality of, of chocolate. But if you buy okay. cooking chocolate and you want to separate it up into small pieces, you're going to want to melt it anyway. This gives you a way yeah. to melt it and come out at the other end tempered. Okay. You're going to put the chocolate or the cacao butter, cacao, cocoa powder and uh, sweetener into a vacuum seal bag. You're going to seal the bag. You're going to chuck it in this pot and you're going to it, the pot's going to be above 36 uh, Celsius and it's going to melt all of the chocolate. And yeah. while you're doing that, create a, make a second pot full of water 
and take your sous vide stick out of the first one and assume it's going to keep going. It's going to it's going to have some thermal momentum. It's going to it's going to slowly get cooler, but while you're getting the second pot up to the correct temperature, and the second pot is going to be getting to 27 degrees. So you want a sous vide stick that can go that low, and this is the okay. l- the low point that the that the, the chocolate's going to hit. So that's 80.6 Fahrenheit. Yeah, and so what you're going to do is you're going to as soon as your sous vide stick tells you you're ready, uh, your melted chocolate in the other bag is probably just starting to get below 36. Quickly put it into the the the, the 27 degree. Uh, pot and what you can do then is you can put some cold water into the other pot maybe you have a, a thermometer or maybe put the sous vide in it and you're getting up to the next point which is where the the pot's going to be at 32 degrees and it's going to stay for as long as it's uh, until you use it and that's 89.6 the third temperature that's right that's the third temperature and that's going to be your melted chocolate ready to uh, crystallize in precisely the right crystals to be able to do tempered chocolate wow. i remember you doing this without sous vide in last year in Breckenridge and you were like massaging it in <laughs> right. plastic bags. Yeah. Yeah. To how, what was that all about? What you do is when you massage it, you encourage the crystals to form. The whole thing about crystallization is once you have one kind of crystal inside the, the liquid mixture and it's slowly um, dropping temperature, that mm. crystal encourages other crystals like it to form around it. That's the nature okay. of the seed of a crystal. So so what you're doing is when you're massaging it is you're encouraging other pieces of chocolate, melted chocolate, to come into contact with this crystal seed. It. And it, But uh, if you read my blog post, you'll actually see when you massage yeah, it. But, yeah, you know, yeah. um, so once you have the chocolate at th- your, your final temperature, that's the temperature. It can sit there for days, melted and ready to, to, to be used uh uh, to um, to make tempered chocolate, and the easy thing once you've got it, your chocolate in a, in a vacuum sealed plastic bag, you want to pipe that chocolate anywhere. You don't have to put it into a piping bag; it's already in a bag. All you have to do is cut the corner off your vacuum sealed bag, and you've got a piping right. set up all ready to go. If you're not going to use all of the chocolate, just uh, fold the fold the tip over that you've uh, that you cut off, and fold the tip over, and just put a peg on it, and uh, put it back into this into the sous vide for temp- keep it at temperature. And I remember what you did was really delicious. You put a hazelnut in the middle of a half moon, you know, a half circle, yeah, and then piped the the tempered chocolate in it, and then let it set, and it was delicious. Or macadamia nuts. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think those macadamia Maybe. nuts were roasted. I roasted them on a frying pan oh, first, yeah. and into the <laughs> chocolate I put some lemon myrtle, uh, which is yeah. uh, <laughs> which is a unique flavor. So you can flavor the chocolate before you put it all in a bag. You can put, but just don't put any water-based um, uh, flavorings. Right. Some orange zest would be really good. Lovely. Because orange and chocolate oh, are yeah. delicious. Com- it's a delicious combination. Especially dark chocolate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and you can use any uh, any essential oils, um, any es- oil essences you can use, um, as long as they're um, appropriate for internal use. Um, right. So, you know, you can make uh, all sorts of, you know, hazelnut. Uh, flavored chocolate by putting a bit of hazelnut mint. oil in mint mint oil is is wonderful in chocolate so yeah so that's my re- <laughs> that's my recipe and <laughs> i feel i apologize that's- to the those who are fasting and have just decided to start, start listening to <laughs> I two keto dudes know to turn it off when we start talking <laughs> yeah. about recipes yeah as soon as we start yeah. getting a bit peckish <laughs> 
That's right. It's a good time to turn it off. Okay, time for me to turn this off. <laughs> well, that, that's great stuff, man. Uh, I love your chocolate. I've had it, and uh, it's it really is above and beyond, you know, anything that you can buy. <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> thanks, Richard. Yeah. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2KetoDudes, on Instagram at 2KetoDudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2KetoDudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. 20,000 members now. I know, right? (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and all that other junk, Head over to gear.2keto.com. Assless chaps. <laughs> and no. if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the 2 Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something, and we promise it'll never be assless chaps in every show. <laughs> Go to fanclub.2keto.com. That's just gratuitous now. <laughs> we should stop this right here. Well, if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts that we produce, including 2 Keto Dudes, mm-hmm. Keto Woman with mm-hmm. Daisy Brackenhall and the Obesity Code podcast with Jason Fung mm-hmm. and Megan Ramos. Think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2keto.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Well, keep calm and keto on, my friend. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. And keep calm and keto fest on. (laughs) Yeah, uh, (laughs) and keep calm and keto fest on, Carl. (laughs) You know, we never mentioned that keto fest reached its goal. Yeah, I know, right? How cool is that? We never mentioned that. Yeah. Well, let's mention Ah. it now before we sign off for the show. Uh, Thank you very much to everybody. Keto Fest was kickstarted successfully. uh, Keto Fest is on. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, if you missed out, you can still buy a ticket at KetoFest.com. So go do it now. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you next week on on Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.